Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Amen. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Once again, every year, uh, this is the Avenue Sign-In Day, where we get our covenant family together. We, we try to refocus on what it means, what the Bible calls us to uh, when it asks us to serve. Um, and we, we want to kind of zero and narrow in our focus. We know that there are tons of amazing things um, that the Avenue's involved in. There's a tons of amazing things that um, our parishioners themselves are involved in, in their personal ministries. There's a, a lot of things happening in our city. Um, but this particular Sunday, one out of 52, we just want to kind of rally the troops and say, hey, man, here's where we need you here, right? Um, that doesn't mean that we do that at the exclusion of other exciting initiatives and things that are happening, um, but we just want to take one Sunday and re-up because we got a lot of things going on here um, that require a lot of bodies, requires a lot of sweat equity, um, and uh, we just need you, and we want to help you understand how to uh, live out your desire uh, to be faithful in God's church. And so uh, with that being said, we'll take one Sunday, and we'll just kind of sit underneath biblical ideas about service and what it means to kind of give our lives. And so uh, let's just start first by kind of reframing and getting an understanding of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about service. Everybody say service. The word servant, service, or serve, um, uh, according to the NIV, will appear in your NIV Bible somewhere like 1,100 times, right? Um, and when we are talking about service, what we are uh, essentially talking about um, at a base level definition is work that is either being done for other people or work that is being done for God. When your Old Testament tells you such and such, um, uh, uh, Jacob served Laban, what it means is, is that Laban was, uh, Jacob was working. Working. He was serving um, under Laban and some other people, right? We, we see that in the Old Testament, we talked about this when we talked about our core value of worship, that in some of our uh, versions, when we preach to you Exodus 9 and 1, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God said, let my people go so that they may worship me, that actually that sometimes, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, they will use the word service interchangeably with worship, right? And so in the Old Testament, when we talk about serving, we cannot remove from it the idea that worship is included in it. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, when we talk about serving, it's usually in reference to uh, uh, temple vessels. They are used in service. Worship actions used in service. When you bring an offering, you're serving. The priestly work in the ministry that they did was all um, uh, uh, encompassed in what it meant to serve. The, the Hebrew word for serve or servant is ebed. And it contains at least two ingredients according to the Holman Bible Dictionary. It's two ingredients in the Old Testament understanding of serving. And a servant, it's both action and obedience, Right? Two ingredients. You got action. Somebody's doing something. And obedience, right? Somebody's submitting to something, right? So when the Bible 
is trying to get you riled up about service, right? It's not just telling you do something, right? It's asking you based on a narrative and some presuppositions about the one who's asking something of you that you would be, your obedience would lead you to action, if that makes sense, right? There's a lot of people serving, but doesn't mean that they're doing biblical service. Can I get an amen, somebody? There's a lot of groups serving, but when the Bible calls you to serve, it's asking you to book, take these two things and book in your action, your action, and let it be motivated out of obedience to the one who created you and who has redeemed you, right? Many people in the Old Testament are called servants, many of them, right? But most notably, Moses is called a servant more than 40 times, and David is called a servant more than 50 times, right? So let's move into the New Testament. The New Testament continues this idea of action, right? When it starts talking about service and when it transliterates words that are from Hebrew, when it carries forward ideas about service, it's talking about labor. It also, Romans 12.1, talks about this idea of sacrificial living, right? Um, Here's just some cool metaphorical imagery. In Philippians 2.17, Paul starts to carry this idea from the Old Testament about offering being a service. And then he says that he himself is like an offering that's being poured out, right? So he personifies the offering. No longer is the offering something we do, but I actually am the offering that the Lord is using in service. The New Testament carries forward the idea that service is also very closely related to worship and offerings. Um, and when we arrive at James 1 today, I want you to have that background in your mind. That as James opens up his epistle, his letter to his audience, he chooses to use words that people understand and immediately will take them somewhere. Everybody say word choice. In the Bible, when the Bible says not one jot or tittle will fall. That means that everything in the Bible is there for our encouragement, our instruction, our reproof and correction, right? And these words that James used in verse 1 are super, super, super loaded, right? Um, turn to your neighbor and say, don't skip the intros. <laughs> we know how y'all read y'all Bible. We know every time you get to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, y'all get to them genealogies. We know y'all can't even pronounce genealogies, genealogies. Pastor, I know you told me to do my devotion, but I read one of them genealogies, and uh, I just, I had to just skip it, right? But those things, the intros to the letters, the salutations, the greetings, all of these things are important, and I think there are some things that God would like to encourage our hearts through. So James says, hey, let me tell you who's writing this letter. James, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to simply just be able to, I think, ascertain from this one little verse is that James is connecting himself to the rich heritage of kingdom service. Specifically using a word that sends alarm bells out to all types of people from all types of places, but connects himself to the rich legacy of kingdom service throughout Scripture. By calling himself a servant, he gives himself authority to speak. When he calls himself a servant, he lets you know about his devotion and his newfound agenda in life. And then when he calls himself a servant, he's telling you how he wants to be identified. 
Amen, somebody. James said, I want to be a servant. So as we keep plowing forward, that word for servant that James is going to use is the word doulos or doulos, whichever one you want to choose. I'm a doulos. Doulos. I just had my own personal moment, but... Uh, but Margo, before there was a 3LR, when I did the program mobile, it was called Dulos. Ah, you see, you see what I did there? You say, okay, okay, okay. I contextualized, but anyway, sorry, y'all. Sorry, sorry, we just had a personal moment. Anyway, but the word Dulos, um, according to um, some commentaries that I thought was really beneficial, is that in the New Testament, Dulos is frequently used to designate a master slave. Right? So you're thinking about a slave, uh, one bound to him, but also a follower of Christ, a bond slave, right? The term points to a relationship of absolute dependence, these two parties, right, in which the master and the servant stand on opposite sides, the former having a full claim and the latter having a full commitment. Let's just pause for a second. So when we start talking about this word doulos, James just doesn't use any word for servant or slave, but he actually calls himself a slave, right? And in his New Testament context, in the early church, they would immediately know what that word meant. It, it had all types of connotations, and everybody knew that if you were a doulos, that means that there's somebody at, over here who has a 100% claim to your life, 100%. And over here, that you actually have no rights of your own, that actually you have a full commitment to the one who has a claim on you. This is not voluntary, essentially, though it has voluntary elements, but there is a, a real claim here, and there's an unrelenting commitment on the other side, right? Everybody understood in that context that the servant could exercise no will or initiative on his or her own, which immediately just drew me back to when we were preaching through John 6. And Jesus, as he came down, he always had these clarifying statements in the middle of that big old dissertation about I am the bread of life. And unless you feed on my flesh in the middle of all that, he says in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Can I just bring you back to Christianity 101? That we can only have one agenda in this house. You don't come to the Lord Jesus and say, hey man, here's what I got going on. Can you help me? Here's what I got going on. You want to advise me. Here's what I want going on, but I made a little room for you. When you come to the Lord Jesus, you lay it all down. What do you want me to do? Now, if your Christianity has taught you something else, my brothers and sisters, I'd invite you back to the testimony of Scripture to find something very different. When James said, I'm a doulos, he's saying, I'm no longer operating on my plan. I've only come to do the will of the one who sent me. Is that you today? Now I've got to pick my iPad back up, Lord Jesus. <laughs> doulos. Actually, in the New Testament, when they start talking about prophets and them being servants, when they start talking about Moses, they actually uh, reinterpret their uh, connection to service by calling them also doulos, right? You can find those in Revelations. When Christ in the canonic hymn in Philippians 2, when uh, Paul starts unpacking the ministry of the incarnational Jesus, right? Christ took upon himself the form of a servant, y'all. Paul, Peter, and James, in their introductions, refer to themselves as servants of God or servants of Christ. 
So when James says that this is James, and I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he does a couple things once again. When he calls himself a servant, he authorizes himself to be the one speaking. When he calls himself a servant, he clues you into his brand new agenda. And when he calls himself a servant, he tells you his new identity, right? So let's talk about how James authorizes himself, right? When James tells them um, that I am a servant, basically to this group, to this group that he is speaking to, he has uh, let them know that I have signed my rights just like you have over to the God of the Bible both God and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Douglas Moose says, if the title servant of God is common, the full description to use both servant of God and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is not common. So maybe it would have been common for people to say, I'm a servant of God. But to also say, I'm a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ was super uncommon, but it was really important to the early in the first church. Why? Because they're saying something profoundly theological. And I think we need to rediscover it too, right? It's, that, it's not only that we believe in God. It's not only that we serve God. It's not only that we worship God. Hey, somebody, but we worship the Lord Jesus. Our lives are submitted to the Lord Jesus, the one in whom all of our sins he bore in his body and took every curse for us, the one in whom we were buried with him and raised to newness of life, the one who promised us the spirit and gave it to us, that Jesus that they talk about in the Holy Scriptures, that's the one who we've given our lives to. What I'm telling you is we got to get more specific. The secular culture we live in, they like to live in anonymity, right? We like positive vibes. We ain't talking about vibes. We talking about the spirit. We ain't talking about a God. We talking about the God. His name is Jesus. Can I get a witness somebody? Secondarily, when James calls himself a servant, he's screaming at you. Here are my priorities. Here's my agenda. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like you going home for Thanksgiving. You know what I'm saying? And, and you know you surrounded, you in the room, y'all ate the last piece of turkey, the bad fried turkey, you know what I'm saying? Whatever you got, you know what I'm saying? Y'all who put raisins in your sweet potatoes, all that just, we're not going to talk about that. Raisins in your macaroni cheese. You don't need nothing in the macaroni but cheese and noodles. Shoot. Right? So we in there, you know, and now all the food done, it's time for the awkward conversation. And, you know, you, you start talking about those things that you probably are told to avoid. And somebody immediately says, well, I'm a blank. And immediately, do they need to say anything else? Because we automatically, rightly or wrongly, start to assume the priorities in the agenda by your association. James is trying, he doesn't even need to unpack what his life is about. Because when he says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus, we understand. <laughs> I wish to God we would graduate to a place, come back to a place where we could just trust. When some, the, the right hand of fellowship, greeting each other with a holy kiss. And when somebody says, hey man, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus, we just, yeah. You ain't got to say nothing else, homie. I got you. What does that mean to you? What does the fact that you serve the Lord Jesus 
What kind of impact has that had on your priorities and your agenda in your life? Because James is screaming this out. He's screaming that my life is the Lord Jesus. It's to be used in kingdom service. It's, it's my top priority in life. It's how I order and structure my life. I was watching the Today Show, of which I am a faithful watcher. And they were just talking about kind of during the pandemic how, how many Americans had side hustles. Can I just tell you, Jesus and his kingdom can't be your side hustle. Either it is the hustle or you probably don't have it. James is shouting, this thing that has caught me up is my life. Is it yours? And I think as he said that, as James wrote that in his first sentence, he's also letting you know his priorities, but I think he's taking great pride in it too. You know, some of us who have family members who served in the military, man, they have those plaques. And, you, you know, unless they had really bad experiences, they, they, they carry that thing with honor. I served in the Air Force. I served in the United States Army. That means something to them, and they serve with great honor and pride. Do you understand that the kingdom of God is a place where you could truly and unashamedly unleash all of your patriotism? All of your longing to be a part of something that is special and above reproach. This, y'all, we get to be a part. You know, I watch all my military movies, and I just, in my mind, I had to Google it. I was like, man, where am I getting that quote from? I think it was Troy, where the guy, one of the, the army, the, the captains was like, man, it's, man, it's been an honor to serve with you. Gina, I think I just... Tweet, put, email it to yourself somewhere. I, when, when they eulogize me. When I'm laying there in that cast, I want you to know I don't have no regrets. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, it will have been my honor to cry with you, to weep with you, to keep preaching with you, to sit with you, to go to football games, to go to your bed. It's been my honor. Because I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's pause just for a second. We know that when James is saying he's a servant, he's, he's qualifying himself to be writing these words. We know that when he's saying he's a servant, he's letting us know his agenda. But who is James? Who is his brother? I think this is really where the fun part starts. Paul tells us in Galatians 1.19 that James is actually the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And the author of this letter, the guy who's wrote, I'm a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's actually Jesus' half-brother. Did you know that? Everybody said, ooh, <laughs> it's good now, nah, right? And this is really important. This is why we can't skip past the intro, because you got to watch this transformation, y'all. As he's addressing these people, he does not come to them and say, hey, yo, 
My name is James, and you should listen to me because I'm leading one of the biggest and most formative churches in this early Christian movement. He doesn't say that, does he? Even though he probably had every right to because he was the pastor of the most important churches in the early Christian movement. But he also doesn't pull the brother card. He doesn't come to them and say, yeah, and you know, the whole thing we follow, that's my brother. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we may or may not look alike. I don't know what Jesus, the, Holy, the Trinity was doing with the looks, but you know what I'm saying? I, half of me in there, you, you know, I'm, I'm trying catch it, get it on the way home. Get it on the way home. But he doesn't appeal on the basis of biology. I am the half-brother, the rightful leader of this church. How does he want to be identified? I'm a servant of God, and I actually serve my half-brother. How many of y'all would be willing to make your sibling your Lord? It's laughable. I changed her dirty diapers. I saw her when she got her first pimple. Unfathomable, right? What kind of transformation has to take place in a human heart to see your biological sibling as your Lord? You want to talk about what motivates us to serve? This is not sweat equity. We cannot build a ministry just trying harder. It ain't going to work. We cannot build a ministry outthinking people. But we can build a ministry if people can catch a hold of the explosive regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. And the reality of what the finished work of Jesus Christ has done for you. And if Jesus' brother could get a glimpse of it, y'all, we can too. And this is our rightful response, not to team up with my little bro. Hey! James didn't say, I'll help him out sometimes. My life is his. Come on, man, that's powerful. So how do you identify yourself? Could you in good conscience write this if you were writing your epistle? Rachel, servant of the Lord God and Jesus Christ. If not, then we need to just graciously ask ourselves some questions. Our master, Jesus, how did he come? Mark 10, he said, I came not to be served but to serve. In the scriptures, in Isaiah, you'll hear this kind of litany of passages called the servant songs. And one, I think this is Moo, Douglas Moo said that those servant songs, they appear to represent this really amazing individual doing these great things, and he establishes justice on earth. But, but the thing that's, that's, that's peculiar about this mighty figure and this really big, larger-than-life figure, that this figure also suffers. 
And we know by reading scripture that that suffering of the servant of those songs in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52, and 53, that actually it is a picture for us of the Lord Jesus. It was perfectly exemplified in his life. Can we take off the makeup of serving? Serving is hard. Can I just be honest with you? Serving is hard. When I sit across from young married folks who are trying to become married, you know, you try to capture both. Like, hey, there is sweet and rich benefits for enlisting ourselves in kingdom service. A lot of times those things are not immediate. Amen, somebody. And yes, there is so much joy in being married, and there is happiness, but we just try to sober them up like, hey, but if you're signing yourself up for immediate gratification and constant happiness and constant peace and constant joy, you're probably not ready. And far be it from you to think you're going to get all the sweetness out of marriage without putting no work and sweat into it. Shame on you, young people. You ain't cried yourself to sleep yet. You ain't had to have your whole accountability on the floor with you praying over. You ain't put no work in yet. Marriage is hard. And it's meant to be hard. Because it's meant to point you upward and it's meant to make you less self-absorbed. And that process is hard. And so is serving Jesus. I think part of the reasons why we get anxious is because we are stressed out because we do think that I'm supposed to continually get less, life is supposed to continually get less difficult. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Word. And you know, half the anxiety comes when it's like, man, I thought I should be just on, I thought I should just set the cruise control on 75 when I'm just going to coast out. How many of y'all waiting to just coast out? Don't hold your breath. That's not what it is, y'all. Following Jesus is hard, but it's so worth it. But the only way that you could drum up the consistency to keep doing the next thing God is calling is if you actually believe that that's what's been done for you. Just listen to Isaiah 53. Starts all positive. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. <laughs> oh, come on back in, y'all. Come on back in here. Come on in here. Just send them on in here. Yay. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. What's up, buddy? You look good. Just being honest. 
This is verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet open not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with wicked, with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and his, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to accounted, be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for his transgressors. As I was writing the message up, I was just like, man, if we were to read Isaiah 53 now, we would be like, who would do that? And who would even try to model a life like that? Take on burdens that are not theirs. Suffer, live in oppression, be constantly afflicted, wrongly accused. Who desires to live like that. As a matter of fact, we would tell somebody, hey man, you're being emotionally abused. Get out of that relationship. Hey bro, you get nothing out of it. Stop doing it. Brother, you need to take care of yourself. But yet, the model for service seems to be the willingness to put other agendas above our own. was listening to TGC and one of the guys said that we need to make self-denial cool again. As we live in a world that is constantly pushing before us self-care, self-care, self-care. And we're trying to hold in tandem what the Bible says that the way down is up, that there is no glory without the cross. We are forced to make some decisions, aren't we all? Because we know that the world that scripture is trying to usher in can only be built with people who are willing to lay down their lives in the same way that our master has laid down his life for us. I don't know what that means for you. 
I don't know what that means for your job. I don't know what that means uh, for your recreational time. I don't know what that means for your friends. I don't know what that means with who you choose to marry or where you choose to live. But if you don't hold those things in tension, and if you think Scripture is just encouraging you to put yourself at the center of your world and only do things that keep you isolated from pain and hurt, then you've missed it. But I want to invite you into something so much more amazing and adventurous. That the promise is that just like Jesus, that God can do things so amazing and transformative with both your mistakes and your suffering that will blow your mind. And that even if you get the short end of the stick, even if your days are filled with some pain, that God is able to use those things as a part of his grand narrative. And you, my friend, get to lay a true claim in in the greatest kingdom that ever is or ever will be, and nobody can take it away from you. And as Paul says, a crown of righteousness will await you 2 Corinthians 9, 6, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously, your Jesus says, you will reap generously. You didn't get saved by merit, but I want to tell you something. Jesus says, but I'm seeing the good works, and I'm seeing what you lay down for the sake of the kingdom, and I'm making a list, and I'm checking it twice. You're not earning your way and you're not earning your position in Christ. But don't you ever for a second let yourself be deceived that God will not reward your faithfulness. Because he will. Where are you today? Has the work of Christ transformed you to be a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? And is it evidenced by a new identity, a new agenda? I pray that it will. Let's bow our heads.